Hi, I'm Patty Smith. This is Bert Newton. Hey, this is Karen. Oh, I'm Sam from Liverpool. I'm Carlos from Liverpool. This is Martha Wainwright. Alex from the Orb. And you're listening to a Triple R archive on rrr.org.au. As I mentioned at the start of the program, I'm sure you're all keenly aware that there is a federal election being held this Saturday. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had Adam Bant from the Greens on the program to talk about the Greens' arts policy. Last week, we had the recently formed Arts Party talking about their arts policy. We've been chasing the Federal Minister for the Arts uh, to talk about the Liberal National Coalition's arts policy without success because they don't appear to have one. Uh, joining me on the line now is Mark Dreyfus, QC MP, the Shadow Minister for the Arts. Mark, why is it important for Labor to have an arts and cultural policy? Uh, Richard, uh, very good to be with you. It's important for Labor to have an arts policy because we think that the arts are crucial uh, to the life of our nation. Uh, the arts define who we are. They show us to be the modern, confident, outward-looking society that we want Australia to be. Um, the arts are how we express ourselves. The arts are how we explain ourselves. I think uh, what, to me, reflected in some ways the significance of arts policy for the Labor Party was the, the launch on Saturday the 4th of June at the Malthouse. Instead of just releasing a policies, you held a formal launch. The opposition leader was there to launch those policies. So clearly there's a, a belief within the ALP that arts and culture does matter, that what the way we talk about ourselves and reflect our culture is significant. Let's talk about some of those key platform policies. To begin with, uh, restoring the Australia Council's ability to make independent funding decisions. We've seen significant cuts to the uh, Australia Council recently to establish what you have called a slush fund. Yes, uh, it is. Uh, that's exactly what's occurred. The uh, coalition government in the 2015 budget, um, so it's more than a year ago, uh, ripped $100 million out of the Australia Council, about 28% of its discretionary funding, put it into a ministerially directed fund, uh, the guidelines for which were never made clear, and that remains the case. Uh, we saw minutes before the caretaker period commenced, just before this election, uh, some $20 million shoveled out the door. Uh, by the new uh, Arts Minister, Senator Fifield. Uh, some of them are pretty hard to understand, and in particular, what's impossible to understand is the relationship that this ministerial fund is meant to have had with the Australia Council's grants process. Uh, we think it's been a mess created by this coalition government, uh, which seems unable to explain itself in relation to the arts. Uh, as you said in your intro, they still don't have an arts policy. It's the second election in a row that the Liberal and National parties are going to the Australian people without a stated arts policy. And as we've also seen, the Prime Minister, uh, when he appeared on Q&A a couple of weeks ago, uh, was either ill-informed or misleading about the Catalyst Fund that has been set up with money taken from independent peer-reviewed assessment at the Australia Council. He claimed that the majority of that money, his quote was, has almost entirely gone to regional companies, to smaller regional companies, where we know that that's not the case. Yeah, that's not the case. And the other um, misrepresentation made by the Prime Minister, who simply just has paid no attention uh, to 
arts and cultural policy. Another disappointment from Mr Turnbull. Uh, the other misrepresentation was the suggestion that the Australia Council has more money than when Labor was in office, which is simply not true. Now, to come back to the Labor Party's arts policy, you've also uh, committed to investing in local production for the ABC so that Australian audiences can watch Australian stories. Yeah, we, we think that the um, extra money that when last in government Labor gave to the ABC to make a range of really high-end drama, um, think Rake or Anzac Girls, just as a couple of examples, or, or The Code, uh, which perhaps less people watched, but I thought was fantastic. Um, all of these uh, high-end TV drama series are telling Australian stories telling Australian stories in a way that can be not only seen here by millions and millions of Australians but exported and we think it absolutely makes sense to invest in Australian drama which is why part of our arts policy includes uh, this additional $60 million for the ABC. Now, you've also spoken about valuing music, both the live music sector, which anybody who lives in Melbourne knows that the ability to go out and see a live band playing original music any night of the week is not something that we can take for granted. Uh, you've also, as part of the policy, spoken about wanting to boost musical education in schools. Now, I know that music is important to you personally. Your father uh, is a composer. Um, and, and my mother's a music teacher. Oh, well, there we go. So my, my half-brother's a composer, Richard. So <laughs> you don't know the half of it. It's, uh, music is a hugely important part of my life and my family's life. So why uh, focus, for example, on just boosting music education in schools rather than arts education in schools more broadly? Uh, I think we've got to work on the base that we've got. Uh, of course, we should be educating our children in all aspects of art and culture, but I think that music is particularly recognised as playing a crucial role uh, in the education of our children. We know that learning um, to sing, learning an instrument, improves every other aspect of your studies at school, and it, this is not new. Uh, this is something that teachers have known, uh, everyone involved in education has known for a very long time. So. We think a Commonwealth Government contribution that increases the amount of music in schools, primarily through singing programs. It's a, more a matter for state governments as to expanding instrumental programs. Um, we think that this is a very good investment in the children of Australia. Now, it wasn't announced uh, uh, formally on Saturday the 4th of June, but I understand that Labor has now also made a commitment to the community broadcasting sector. Yes, that's right. That was a separate announcement made by uh, Jason Clare, our Shadow Communications Minister, and that's a commitment of five, a bit over $5 million to community radio for digitisation to support community radio. We think that community radio is particularly important, listened to by many hundreds of thousands of Australians, including your listeners, and it fits together very well with the strengthening of live music. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with the Shadow Minister for the Arts, Mark Dreyfus, who is the member for Isaacs, uh, located in Melbourne's southeastern suburbs. So uh, there may well be members of uh, your electorate listening at the moment, Mark. Um, if Labor uh, are voted in uh, at the election on Saturday... Uh, one of the questions I have is that what you've announced as an arts policy in some ways feels less a broad-ranging, deep policy, more just a series of election promises. Will we see the development of a detailed policy such as the one that uh, an earlier Labor government launched several years ago? Um, the, the 
point I've made repeatedly since uh, I've consulted in my first year as Shadow Arts Minister through 2014, the point I've made repeatedly is that people have asked us to recommit to Creative Australia, which was the first national cultural policy adopted in this country for more than 20 years, adopted by the Labor government in March 2013. And the reason why people have said to me over and over again, we think you should recommit to this, is because it, it itself was the product of deep consultation over about two years by Simon Crean as Minister, resulting in that policy. Uh, you, you might have seen that in our national platform, adopted at our national conference last year in July in Melbourne, we recommitted to that Creative Australia policy, which I will take as the starting point, a launching off point, if we are elected to government on the 2nd of July. It's a very comprehensive policy. It deals with every aspect of arts and culture uh, throughout Australia. And you're quite right, Richard, to say that what we announced in our policy launch on the 4th of June at the Malthouse uh, in the um, speech given by Bill Shorten, the Leader of the Opposition, and the policy document we published is specific election commitments that we're making in the arts area, uh, not as a standalone policy. Uh, and again, I'd say um, anyone can go and look at uh, that Creative Australia policy adopted in March 2013. It will be the starting point for our policy if we can um, be elected to government on the 2nd of July. Mark, as a final question for you, I've been contacting uh, Senator Mitch Fifield, the Minister for the Arts, on a daily basis via Twitter, asking for news of an arts policy. I know many others uh, in the arts and cultural sector who have uh, made formal interview requests or approaches which have gone unanswered. Are you surprised at the fact that the Coalition don't have an arts policy? I've heard suggestions that uh, Fifield wanted to attend the national arts election debate in Melbourne with some kind of election promise, but uh, that hope was quashed by others within his own party. What do you think is going on? Uh, I have no idea. Patricia Carvillis, who was the moderator for that debate at the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne, uh, tweeted the day before that... Uh, Senator Fifield was going to make some kind of announcement. Nothing eventuated, Richard. I find it staggering that uh, a party that is saying that it is capable of governing Australia, and uh, which the Liberal Party and the National Parties are saying, uh, is going to a second election in a row without a written arts policy document. I think it's shameful. Um, it shows, it speaks volumes about the complete lack of commitment to the arts from the Liberal and National Parties and what a massive disappointment Mr Turnbull has turned out to be in this area as in so many others. He was thought to be someone that had an interest in arts and culture. Uh, nothing about the nine months of his Prime Ministership has demonstrated that and Katie Noonan, Noonan's question to him on Q&A uh, last week uh, and his dreadful answer to it uh, shows that Again, uh, he has dropped the ball completely uh, in this area too. Mark Dreyfus, thank you very much for joining us this morning and uh, I guess good luck on Saturday for you and your party. Thank you very much, Richard. Thanks for having me. Hi, I'm Patty Smith. This is Bert Newton. Hey, this is Karen. Oh, I'm Sam from Minipore. I'm Carlos from Minipore. This is Martha Wainwright. Alex from the Orb. And you're listening to a Triple R archive on rrr.org.au. <laughs>
I may be a Melbourne-based arts program host, but uh, I like to look at what's going on nationally. And I'm sure you'd uh, maybe fancy uh, an escape from the winter cold. Darwin Festival uh, recently launched their program for 2016. The festival is running from the 4th until the 21st of August. The artistic director of Darwin Festival, Andrew Ross, joins me on the line now. Andrew, good morning. Good morning, Richard. So, for Melburnians shivering in the the middle of uh, a rather fierce winter, what's the attraction of Darwin? What's the culture of Darwin Festival like, and how does it reflect the city that hosts it? Um, Well, I guess we start with the weather. I think we have the best festival hub of any festival in Australia. It's in a civic park in the city, and uh, we have a... It's like a, a... food hall of uh, all sorts of terrific um, stalls with uh, foods, mainly a lot of uh, Southeast Asian food, because that's where we are, Um, and a couple of terrific venues, Browns Mart, which is is one of the oldest uh, buildings standing in Darwin, and um, our own sort of version of a Spiegel tent, but unlike a Spiegel tent, it it doesn't have a roof, because you would just... Uh, it would turn into a sweat box if it did in Darwin. Uh, it's like an open-air Spiegel tent called the Lighthouse. Um, so, yeah, that's a very pleasant place to hang out. Um, you also see a few things, I think, that are uh, very clearly of, of the north that you may not see in other festivals. Some of the music, um, B2M, Bathurst and Melville, Melville uh, band, who are actually teaming up with uh, Timor Leste's Ego Lemos. Um, Stephen Pigram from the north of Australia, from Broome. Um, Narbalek uh, from West Arnhem Land. Um, Joey Ayala from the Philippines. Frau from Indonesia. So along with a lot of the sort of music you might expect to find in other parts of Australia, there's also a lot of music that, that particularly reflects um, Northern Australia and, and Southeast Asia. Let's talk about those connections that the festival has with Southeast Asia, for example. Darwin is as much an Asian city as it is an Australian city. So it makes sense, therefore, that you would have those connections with the Philippines, with Indonesia and so forth. For you as the artistic director of the festival, how important is it to use the festival to strengthen cultural connections between Australia and our neighbours? Well, you know, I mean, we're part of Southeast Asia here, so um, I guess, you know, we certainly I sort of, you know, identify myself as part of the Southeast Asian arts community. Um, For example, we have a, a, a new work opening um, called Medium uh, by the choreographer and performer Rianto from Central Java and also uh, Garen Nagroho, who's le- really Indonesia's leading uh, filmmaker, also from Central Java. Um, and that's actually having its premiere in the Darwin Festival before it goes to Europe and then later on to Adelaide and finally back to Jakarta. Now, one of the other things that Darwin Festival does is also present for the population of the top end works from around the country that they may otherwise not get to see because if they want to fly to Melbourne or Sydney or Adelaide, for example, to see a work, they're looking at, what, an eight-hour flight uh, and an overnight stay. So when you're looking for works that have been presented in other festivals or by artists from around Australia, again, to, to bring up to Darwin, what's the... Is there a connecting thread? Are you just looking for something unique that hasn't been seen before? 
four or something that will really connect with a, a Darwin audience? What's your curatorial framework for the, the Australian works that you've programmed into the festival, such as Yana Alana, for example? Yeah, well, we, we, there's a strong cabaret element this year. We have Yana Alana, um, we have Maura Finnecane with the birds, and we also have from the UK, uh, Misbehave. Um, we also have a lot of um, music, I guess a lot of pop indie music, but um, we've also got three concerts from uh, the Sydney-based uh, pianist Tamara Anna Czeslowska. Uh Darwin's got a relatively small population, so um, the festival uh, needs to appeal to a whole lot of, of different tastes. So we, you know, we have jazz, we have classical music, we have pop, um, as well as a strong dance and theatre program. Not all of the international works from Southeast Asia. Uh, there's a strong Irish emphasis this year um, in recognition of uh, the centenary of the Easter uprising. Um, for example, Tamara is playing the, uh, the nocturnes of, of John Field. And also we have uh, Dead Centre Theatre Company from Dublin um, performing Lippy, which is an absolutely extraordinary uh, piece of theatre. And I think the only other Australian city you're going to see that in is, is Brisbane. Now, the other thing I wanted to ask you about uh, is uh, there was a bit of ruckus around Darwin Festival in the media a couple of weeks ago. There was a, uh, a suggestion that the festival may have to be cancelled and then I understand the board were dismissed by government and the festival placed under administration. How has that impacted on the morale of you and your staff and on the presentation of the 2016 Darwin Festival? I mean, it's had no direct impact on the content of the program. The program was already at the printer when all of this came to a head. Um, it, it's having an impact in that we're working under very tight and very closely scrutinised budgets. That's not affecting the content of the program. It's affecting um, other aspects of the festival, though. And the staff have been terrific. Um, they've handled the, the whole... Um, drama with great professionalism and, and discretion and dedication. You've got a, a great team who get this festival on. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking to Andrew Ross, Artistic Director of Darwin Festival. The festival itself uh, just recently launched the program and running from the 4th until the 21st of August. And to my mind, as well as everything that you've spoken about already, Andrew, one of the, the great reasons for uh, Victorians to head up is the chance to see Marianne Butler's play Broken, which is the first piece of drama to win the Victorian Prize for Literature at the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards earlier this year. So this is a remount of, uh, of Broken, I understand. Um, it must be a delight. And look, it's unusual for a festival to, to do a remount, but I felt it was a very compelling reason to do this. First of all, um, you know, it ran for two weeks last year. I saw it. I was absolutely knocked out by it. Um, and now there's a whole lot more people want to see it. We're ex really expecting that it'll be one of the first things to sell out in the festival. Um, you know, it's a play from the Northern Territory. It's a story that's set in the Northern Territory that explores universal themes. And it, yes, it's the first um, play ever to take out the overall uh, Victorian Premier's uh, Literary Award. Um, you know, it's uh, two of the best plays I've seen in the last 
several years in the theatre of Australia have been Darwin plays. Uh, one was Jada Albert's uh, Brothers Wreck and, and the other one was Broken. Um, there's no doubt that work of a manifestly international standard can be produced here in the Territory. And hopefully some of us uh, can get to see more of that work. I'm, I'm hoping to see uh, a production of Broken. And this is not a, a comment directed at you, but this is a comment directed at all the Melbourne theatre companies I know, large and small. Please, somebody put on kind of uh, Mary Ann Butler's play Broken. I really, really want to see it. But uh, maybe I should just come up to Darwin Festival, running from the 4th until maybe the 21st of August. We, we opened a, a musical called Prison Songs, um, uh, which uh, was also very successful, but um, it's it's funny you know, things can be that successful um, in the north of Australia and very rarely uh, find their way south. Well, hopefully a few more things find their way south, but also hopefully a few people listening think, yeah, I might uh, yeah, book that winter holiday in Darwin this year instead of overseas. Darwin Festival, running from the 4th to the, 4th to the 21st of August. Full program details at darwinfestival.org.au. We've been speaking to Andrew Ross, the Artistic Director. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Richard. Hi, I'm Patty Smith. This is Bert Newton. Hey, this is Karen. Oh, I'm Sam from Interpol. I'm Carlos from Interpol. This is Martha Wainwright. Alex from the Orb. And you're listening to a Triple R archive on rrr.org.au. <laughs> Something a little bit different for Smart Arts this week. Coming to you now live, move from the studio into the performance space, and there's people here, so that's kind of weird to begin with. Hello, everybody. Thanks for coming. Um, and also, uh, a very warm welcome to my next guest, Colin Friels, who joins us uh, in conversation for the next hour. Um, Colin began his training uh, at NIDA, the National Institute of Dramatic Arts in Sydney, um, has won multiple AFI awards, uh, a career spanning three decades. Does it feel like three decades? Yeah, this morning it does. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Gone bang, quick. Yeah. So currently you're performing in a play presented by the Melbourne Theatre Company. It's uh, uh, Skylight by the British playwright David Hare. Let's start out by talking about sure. Skylight. Um, one of the things that intrigued me about it before I'd seen it was thinking, well, this is a remount of a show written in the 90s that's looking at the impact of Thatcherism kind of on the UK. And initially I thought, how relevant is this play to us today? But then with everything that's happened with Brexit in the UK, the communities who voted to leave Europe, so many of them are communities that were devastated by Thatcherism yeah. and that have had 30 years of, of decay and inequality. Yeah. So clearly it's still an enormously relevant play. I, I agree with you. I mean, sort of like all, all, all dictators, there's the, the aftermath goes for a long time, doesn't it? I mean, um, and certainly with um, the play being post-Thatcherism, the rise, the, the, the um, massive swell of corporatism, uh, uh, corporate thinking, corporate running of communities, in a sense even the ethic that there was a, a, a great... A Canadian economist I, I read, uh, John Ralston's Soul, and uh, I remember reading his book around the same time as this, uh, maybe, yeah, around, around the Thatcher period. His theory, his, he was posing that, that the corporates are now sort of running society, that, 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 that every society, and he was saying, well, it's a bit like getting an entomologist to run society. You can sort of predict what the ants are going to do because you can... He said, but that 
applying that corporatism to running a society, they're going to go off the rails. It's going to seem to work. But he talked about basically the pyramid getting stronger, that, that really that's how it's going to be run from the top. And certainly I think with, with like, the, the, the Brexit, it is the, the undemocratic nature of, uh, of the EU. It, it completely, you look at Greece, Spain, Portugal, things like that. Of course, I, I expected the British to vote to leave. I, I did. I honestly did. I thought they'd narrowly leave. And I completely understand why. Um, as its relevance to the play, Ahir being uh, a very, very clever man, um, I guess his play is almost more relevant now, in a sense, than when he wrote it, because there's a sort of... There's a potency or a, a, a punch in his prophecy. It's almost a, a, a prophetic sort of... Oh, I guess all good l works of literature have, a, have an element of prophecy in them, I suppose. They can see... And Hare is very good, I, I guess. I, I'm, I, I don't know his plays really well, but I, he's obviously incisive about what's going on in Britain and has a view that he's not afraid to uh, make known, but he's not... There's nothing naive about him, you know. He's, he's got. A, he, he can. He can put things in a very dramatic way. Yeah. I guess. Now, and and it's the drama that, to me drove the play. I I went in having not read the the play itself. Sure. I went in thinking I'm not going to get a political lecture, but I'm going to get a, a really politically aware play. But it's it's very much also. It's a story about love and struggling to love yeah. and coming to terms with the after effects or the, yeah. the fallout of love. Yeah. Your character, Tom, uh, is visiting uh, Kira, his ex, uh, who is younger than him. He was having an affair with uh, yeah. while still married. So there's all that going on as well. Yeah. Um, which aspect of the play involves you, kind of like uh, connects with you more, the politics or the human emotion and the, the, this struggle of love? The politics of the play doesn't um, uh, grab me in the sense that it's pretty simplistic. Um, and I think that's intentional from here because really I think what he's written about is about... Well, <laughs> not what is love, but what, what, um, what is the drive of the play is, is this love that these two people had or have... Um, in in it's not a bit like love in the time of cholera or anything like that. But there is this. He does take this theme. I heard I heard an interview with him. I'd, apparently it's, it's on television, but I heard it. And Hare said that he was in a very, for the first time in his life, he was in a very happy romantic situation. His love life was sorted out. He'd finally met. He'd finally he was at peace. I think he's a bit of a dude, Mr. Hare, you know, which is why in all these plays there's always young, older men with younger women. And I guess for guys like David Hare and Bill Nye, they're rich, who did this play before in Broadway and that, they're, they're rich, they're powerful, they're old, but they're dudes, so they think, well, why wouldn't young women be interested in me, you know, but I can't compute with that. <laughs> I don't compute. I really don't. Um... So I think Hare was in a very happy state and he wanted to write a play about the complexities of love, not just relationships, but this need. And he couches it. He gives you Tom Sargent, the entrepreneur, the sort of lad who's made it. He's a... I mean, 
It's no mistake that he picked this, the rise of, of, of MasterChef, which I have to say I've never seen. I've never seen any of those That makes two of us. So. Yeah, no, it can't, couldn't. But here's picked an, a, a restaurateur to be this big, very wealthy man, you know, hundreds of restaurants, opens hotels and restaurants in London, New York, um, Los Angeles, all that sort of stuff. And this teacher who's teaching in, in, in East London, in East Ham, and this one of the roughest schools in London... And there they are. He puts them in a room. Hare says he doesn't like write plays in a room. Well, I'm sorry, but he has written a play in a room. And uh, you get these megalomaniacal designers that say, ah, oh, well, I'm going to make a big design, you know, and you think, ah, oh, thanks, you know, that, that's all we need. Um, so it is, in fact, a play in a room about two people um, who once had a very strong covert relationship, a, a sort of nasty seed. When you look at it objectively, there's Alice, my wife, an 18-year-old girl turns up at our restaurant. She comes home to stay with us that night. She goes off to Oxford, goes to university, comes back, and I have a, an affair with her for six years under my own roof. And every night she's there, and Alice never knows. And you think, well... That, that's interesting. And he says, my character says at the end, I always asked you, I told you I would end the marriage and you, would you be my wife? And she almost said no, she refused. So he blows it one night and leaves the letters in the kitchen that Alice reads and it's all over. Then Alice, plotly enough, you know, I've got a couple of problems with the play, with all that <laughs> sort of stuff. I really do. Um, but here's a genius, so you can't say anything. And, um, and, 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 she discovers this affair and, and, and it's all over and three years later he goes to see her and she's like 30-something now. OK, and he can... It's not that he wants to rekindle the light. The guilt that he has... Yeah, it's more... That's the thing that struck me, it's more about it's him like, and lancing guilt. the boil of guilt yeah, rather exactly. than believing the relationship can be restarted. Exactly, and I don't think he thinks it can. He says at the end of the play, I came here today wanting forgiveness. I thought you'd say, OK, things just happen. Most things are chance. But she's one of those... It's a play about class, too. She's this upper-middle-class girl who thinks that she can change the world by teaching in a rough school. And you think, well, yeah, you can maybe help a couple of kids, but get real. Don't screw everyone else's life up in the process. And, yes, the ethic of being a good teacher... I mean, we all went to school. We're lucky if we remember one or two good ones. And, my God, do I have respect for it as a profession. It's it's the most... Uh, I, uh, nurses, teachers... I mean, what, what, how hard do we want to make it for them? You know, <laughs> how impossible do you want... And how valuable are they in the community? So he knows that, too... But he's such a clever guy. I, I sometimes think I'd like to get him and bang his head off a wall and say, stop being so clever sometimes. <laughs> Just speak the truth more. Uh, Are you intimidated by clever no, writers? not at all. No, not intimidated. I give up before I start, but I'm not intimidated. <laughs> I'm really not. No, I refuse. To, intimidation is a gross sign of weakness. I, I, I refuse to be intimidated by anyone. Look, the best day I ever had as an actor... I was handy. That's, that's the truth of what I'll say about me. So I have no need to be intimidated. Any aspiration of ambition, if it ever existed, which I doubt, at 63, get over it. That's not there. So there's no intimidation, I promise you. But I do think, yeah, for all you're clever, I can see your plot cranking along, and I think, that's not very good, is it? You know, I mean, 
I'm, I'm amused by clever people sometimes because they must know how clever they are. And you think, yeah, I know how clever you are, but so what? You know, I'm not, it's not ultimately, it's, it's fine, but, but of course you have to be clever to write a good play. It's a, it's a great skill. And he's a master with language. He's a very clever man. And his heart's in the right place. There's no two ways about it. So if you're not intimidated by clever men and clever playwrights, are you intimidated by vast slabs of text and the challenge of mastering an accent for a play, which is what you have to do with oh, this? Yeah, well, say, we opened the play Thursday night. I can't tell you how off I was. People said, oh, that review in The Age or whatever it was and that review in The Australian. Well, there's some, there's some flea writes for The Age. I don't know who he is. Um, he's like a... He's like a I, I feel sorry for him. He's a sad little creature. Um, what's Hello, his name? Cameron, if you're listening. Cameron Wood. Cameron Wood. You are a sad little man. Go home and get your mum to give you a hug. And don't be so personal. If you think I was bad on opening night, son, I can tell you how bad I really was. So there's no problem about that. I was nowhere near ready on Thursday night. But you know you weren't, but you can't... I can trick it. But if I trick it, I know there's going to be bits of the play that I love that the audience aren't going to get. So I just, I'd rather dive off and fail. Now, for example, dialect. My dialect has seismically changed from Thursday night to even Monday night when you saw it. And last night when I performed it, we did a matinee on Wednesday and I did a night show Wednesday night. Now my dialect's ready to start. But we had a thing in the room called a dialect coach. And I'm a guest at the Melbourne Theatre Company and I'm trying to be nice because my wife said, you've got to be nice to people and you'll get more work. So I'm trying to mend my ways and not tell everyone that sort of thing. So the dialect coach come into the room, my heart sort of froze. And a golden rule of mine is that you never, ever, ever work on a text with an actor if you're doing a dialect. Pick up a newspaper, pick up a book, pick up a kiddie's book, anything. Work on the dialect with that, but never touch the text that the actor is going to work on for the very simple reason you will make that actor immediately self-conscious. And the whole purpose of acting is to become unself-conscious. So it's a disaster. My mind is, is very pliable. It's like a sponge, like a, an old sponge. And Although I try and resist people, they get in and they scramble your brain. And they don't, it's not, it's just that I'm gullible. So by Thursday night, it's an, I don't know what opening night means. We did a preview on Saturday night. As far as I'm concerned, that's open. But these people get excited and they get telegrams and flowers backstage and it's just a joke. It's so silly. <laughs> it's really silly. And you go on and people go... I took a prompt. I, I took a prompt. I was right in the middle. We'd got a couple of speeches around the wrong way. I was trying to get back on, and I thought, I'm stuffed. And I think the most dramatic, truthful bit of acting I did on the Thursday night was, I can demonstrate it for you. I can see it. I saw it. I saw me do it. From I stood there, and I went, <coughs> prompt! And this brilliant stage manager that we have, Jess, this prompt came so fast and so clear... And people after the show said, man, that was the best thing about the whole night. <laughs> and it was true. It was the only real thing that happened. So you can't... You, failure doesn't matter. Now, this poor little fellow that writes a review in The Age, he, um, um, he takes it personal. 
And you think, no, don't do that. Because his review was so unintelligent. I'll tell you why I'm not intimidated. This is what it means. Is that his review was so unintelligent. He didn't once mention the play. He had fun bagging the actors. And I think he has something personal against the director, Dean Bryant. I think they have a history. I don't know what it is. I have no idea. But I sense from reading it. Because Dean's done a lot of musical comedy. And this is not good enough for this reviewer. Actually, I'm going to pick you up there because Cameron loves musicals. He really does. I'm sure he does, and he should stick to them. Now, Cameron is a sad little man and a, and a very... How he got his job, I have no idea. I'm going to cut you off there because we, we're not here to bag out critics and no, reviewers, but no. I am intrigued to know that you're an actor who reads reviews because so many actors... I read I, every review. So many actors say, at least claim, not to read the I reviews. I read them all. We're going to talk about some other aspects of your career now, but I did just want to remind people that Skylight by David Hare, currently on, presented by the Melbourne Theatre Company, which Colin Friels, my guest, is performing in, is on until the 23rd of July at the South Bank Theatre. But in a moment, we're going to jump back to uh, earlier parts of your career and to maybe to trigger some memories let's start with a track by the penguin cafe orchestra called telephone and rubber band from the film malcolm that you were in starting in 1986 coming to you live from the Triple R Performance Space. Mm. 
Uh, and I'm here with actor Colin Friels. Colin, we just heard a track from one of your early films, Malcolm, from 1986, uh, Penguin Cafe Orchestra, and their track Telephone and Rubber Band. When I mentioned on Facebook that I was interviewing you, one of the first questions from quite a few of my friends was, ask him what happened to the car from Malcolm, the one that splits in half and kind of goes off in different directions to confuse the cops. Uh, the last I heard from David Parker, who was the uh, who, who wrote and uh, produced and photographed it, uh, his wife Nadia Tass, they they, they were the um, creators of that. I uh, last I heard, I think it was in a museum in Brisbane, uh, like a, uh, what do you call it, one of those modern museums, because it was a work of art that David Parker made. He got a Honda, a yellow Honda Z, took the motor out, um, uh, split it down the middle. Um, and put two little Kawasaki 90 motorcycles on either side, got a few clips um, and, uh, and two little motorbikes, and when the car split, a couple of guys rode each side of it. It was remarkable. It, <laughs> Very creative man, David. It was a magic moment in, the, yeah, in the film, and it is a really sweet and lovely film as well. Oh, yeah, and, and uh, John Hargraves, the great John Hargraves and Lindy Davies, but John was one of my favourite actors of all time, and... He was just sublime in that film. I, I, he was wonderful, John. Um, long gone. But uh, it was a very, very sweet film. It was a time when they were making all those films like Porky's for kids and all that sort of stuff. So it was a sort of antidote to that. We thought, like, make a sweet, make a sweet film. You know, clever, funny. And David has a wicked, wicked sense of humour, you know. Mm. Now, you've made a lot of films, you've made a lot of TV, um, you, you've worked for all the major Australian theatre companies. So, to many people, you're an art, kind of like you are the, the archetype of an Australian actor. But you were born in Scotland yeah. and you emigrated here when you were 10 years old. So, yeah. I just want to ask recently, we've seen the, the idea of Scottish independence thrust back into the headlines. What are your thoughts on an, on an independent Scotland? Is it something you'd like to see? Look, I don't know. I don't know enough about, <coughs> excuse me, the situation there. But um, I simply say, if the will of those, uh, if, if the majority of Scottish people wish to be independent, then fine. Um, I, don't, I don't really know how it would would affect. I know Scotland at the moment wants to be in the EU. Um, fair enough. It'd be interesting to see what happens. Uh, then you have Northern Ireland to think of too. Um, I think Scotland's a, a remarkably resilient little place, and um, I don't know. I, I don't know what will happen. Um, I have no. I have no, I've no, I've no prejudice against against uh, England either. So I don't know if they coexist well. Whatever's better for the people, I would hope would you know. Look, by and large, an electorate gets what it deserves. God help us come Saturday. <laughs> um, you know, they, they'll get it wrong again. Um, but <laughs> I hope. You know, I don't know what had happened to Scotland. Um, I hope it goes well, though. If independence was the best thing for it, then as a sovereign country and, and, and in the EU, more power to it, you know. I know people say the independent Scottish Parliament's a pretendy wee parliament and all that sort of stuff. I doubt that. I listened to someone that, that... I can't remember her name at the woman, um, uh, the Scottish lady. She's smart as a whip, you know, and, and uh, she's pretty straight about it all. I guess they know what they need... It'd be very difficult, Europe. I mean, it's obviously extremely difficult um, for many people in Europe, with the refugees, with uh, God knows what's going on there. You know, I, I, I'm glad I'm not there. Yeah.
Now, one of the, the, the things that I wanted to ask you about in relation to Scotland was I wanted to um, just quickly, and uh, I was just curious how easily you can slip back into a Scottish accent because I, you used one in 2001 opposite Billy Connolly, yeah. the man who sued God, uh, and I think he claimed that your accent was more convincing than his. He said, he just sound more like me than I do, Colin. You know, aye. Oh, easy. Yeah, accents. <clears throat> Look, Accents are no problem. I mean, I know <laughs> people say I've got a terror, but I'm mugging around with the accent in this play till I find it because I'm actually still rehearsing. But accents, yes, yeah, Scottish accents, English, whatever, it's it's not a problem at all. But it, it was funny working with Billy because he's from Glasgow and so was I. So we're from. He, he didn't know I was basically born in the same place, um, and it's a pretty rough place, and and it's a very particular sound that sound of that part of Glasgow and it's once you know it it's not hard to not hard to do but oh, I like I love the Scottish dialect I love the Welsh dialects I love all those European dialects I love uh, they're, they're, I'm doing a play next called by, by my favorite writer ever to write for the theater uh, two of them one's uh, Brian Friel an Irish writer who died this year the other one's Anton Chekhov who was a Russian bloke he was pretty handy and um and there's a, it's an Irish play called Faith Healer, and I will have to play an Irishman in it. And you've got such a, a mixture of dialects to choose from. Uh, but there's a wonderful documentary um, my wife found on uh, YouTube uh, with Brian Friel and Seamus Heaney and people like that talking. So there's a joy you'll be able to find a dialect that will suit me as a person doing this play. And that, that, you really look forward to getting, a, getting that right because it's written in such an Irish way. But, uh, so it's handy to have that background sometimes when you're doing those plays. Mm. Now, you've worked, as I said, across film, TV, theatre. Regardless of the medium that you're working in, what attracts you to a role? What, uh, is, it, is it about just going, well, I need the paycheck, I'll take whatever's offered? Or is it a, a case of there's a particular writer you, whose work you've always wanted to do or a, a particular theme? I mean, you've done everything from, uh, well, Ground Zero, a conspiracy thriller yeah. um, about the mistreatment of Aboriginal people and the exploitation of Australian service people. And I, I wonder whether a film like that could even get made these days. You also yeah. did Dark Man, which was a superhero film <laughs> long before superhero <laughs> films were in vogue what how do you choose roles oh look i was my wife was working in america at the time the little one was little ones were little and uh she had a. I was there looking after kids and that and I, um and she had a very powerful agent who rang me up one day he said colin they're making a movie down at universal it's called dark man go down pretend you're American because I needed some money and um, so I went down and uh, it was funny I went into this room and there was this queue of all these people and I said oh I'm here to do a, a, a read for this thing Mr. Lamato sent me yeah just wait at the end of the line and I went oh, fuck that off you go and then someone came out and said no no they want to see you come in because Eddie had a lot of pull, I think. So, and I wasn't his client, obviously. You know, he had, like, Denzel Washington and got all these stars and God knows what. Anyway, I went into the room and there were five, like, little producers and this funny little chap called Sam Raimi, who was the director. I remember it quite clearly. And I was sitting in a little room, about ten by ten, and they're sitting there down like this and, hello, hello. You know, Americans, they're so nice, you know, and all that. And so they said, so you want to read it? And I said, yeah, sure. So I stood up and I read it and they went, wow, man, you've got presence. <laughs> That's how I got the part. 
<laughs> All I did was stand up. Thought, oh, and then they took me down and there was this lovely, beautiful lady called Frances McDormand and we read a scene and they filmed those and she said, oh, and gave me a cut. Then this big, handsome Irishman, Liam Neeson, came and said, hello, how are you? I'm, I'm Liam. And I said, good. God, you're joining us, you know. And that was it. I mean, I had a mullet, a denim jacket on and, um, and we shot it like that and then they said, oh, look, after about a million feet of film, they said, look, we need to do a couple of reshoots. We want to take you to a store. They bought me this incredible suit, quaffed my hair like Michael Douglas and said, we want you to play the part like that now. So I thought, I did it twice. And they paid you twice. <laughs> now, but I had no idea what I was doing. You've mentioned your wife, uh, who's uh, actor Judy Davis, yeah. several times. Um, I'm tempted to ask if you can remember the, your, the date of your wedding anniversary, just to put you on the spot for a moment. 30th of September, a long time ago. 1984, I think. Yeah, would it yeah, be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've got 30th of October, but I'll take your word for That's it. That's September. OK, cool. Because I had to get my daughter a, uh, a UK passport, and I had to send... And I didn't know I'd lost my birth certificate and that. Oh, I had to get myself a passport too. I hadn't been overseas for a long time. It had run out. And I went to the registry in Scotland and I had to get the marriage certificate because we were married by a marriage celebrant called Kath Buttress who had to pick her up from Bondi Junction, bring her to the house in Darlinghurst. She married us with a couple of friends there because... I insisted that if you're going to live with me, you've got to marry me. Um, and um, then I drove Kath back to Bondi Junction. She rang up and said, I've left me purse there, me bag. I said, oh, God, you have. I'll bring it round. I opened the bag and there was a 38 gun <laughs> in the bag, a 38 calibre pistol in the bag. I said, it must get rough marrying people. She said, you never know what you'll find out there. <laughs> now, I wanted to ask, a lot of actors I know are fairly competitive for roles, given that you're married to, a, to another actor. Do the two of you compete for roles? Do you and Judy compete, or do you just go, right, I'll do this kind of stuff, you do that kind of stuff, never the twain shall Oh, God, I, you know, I'd look bad in a frock, I really, <laughs> you know. Although my great success was I played Carol Churchill play called Cloud Nine and I played Betty, who was a young Victorian bride, and I loved playing Betty. A great play, great part. That was fun. But, oh, God, not competitive. God, no, no, that, that way madness lies. I'm, I, I, I'm, I promise you, uh, there's no point in being competitive. You... you, you I hear golfers, or not that I follow golf, but you hear sports people say you compete with yourself. You're only trying to get the best out of yourself. You're hard enough pushed to get yourself to a reasonable standard. I think you'd go mad if you started to compete with other actors. Of course, everyone has waves of, what do you call it, professional envy. Yeah, it'd be great to get their pay packet sometimes, or great to get that, that, that gig. That'd be, I'd love to play Michael Keaton's part in Birdman. That'd be sensational. But you know you wouldn't do it as well as Michael Keaton, so it's best he did it. You know, but um, for example, yeah, I, I love watching other actors do great work. I, you know, I really do. I love it. I honestly do. I've often stayed behind. If I see someone in a play and they're in the dressing room for a while, I'll wait because there's a great saying with a horse. <clears throat> a great old horse master said to me, ask often, expect a little and praise enormously. So if you see someone do something good from their heart that's, that's a great performance, I believe that you've really got to let them know, you know. And competition's sick. 
it really is. People say you have to be competitive. Why? I, I've never understood it. You know, you've got to do your best and you claim your space. You're not a bleeding heart. But um, whoever, name any other actor, they'll, they'll do what they'll do and you'll do what you'll do. <laughs> Good luck to them. You know, it's all chance anyway, half of it. Now, uh, a more recent film that you appeared in was Tomorrow When the War Began. Oh, God, which it, was, it was only in it for half a day because I needed... Yeah, I needed a quid. Yeah. So, um... Yeah. But and I was terrible in it, too. I didn't know what I was doing. You played a dentist. Oh, I, I should have... I, oh, God. Yeah, that reminds me of a Spike Milligan muse, yeah. Anyway, I, I, I played a dentist. I wouldn't have been a very good dentist either, <laughs> I don't think. We're going to hear a track from oh. the soundtrack of Tomorrow When the War Began. This is The Cruel Sea with The Honeymoon Is Over. Oh, right.
You're tuned to Triple R, Smart Arts, coming to you live from the Triple R performance space with my special guest actor, Colin Friels. Colin, you were working on a building site in 1973 when you do, decided to apply for NIDA, the National Institute of Dramatic Arts. In recent years here in Australia, we've seen the likes of author Christos Cholkis and similarly in the UK, uh, actors such as Paul McGann, Judy Dench and others, expressing concern that working class kids are increasingly locked out of culture, that they don't have... Kids today don't have the opportunity to go and study art, theatre making and so forth as mm. actors of, of your generation. Do you agree that that's an issue? And if so, what can we do about it? I think... I know, I know Sydney particularly well, I suppose. I spend a lot of time there. And uh, I, I, it really grieves me how, say, my generation... Not, not just the baby boomers. Um, <laughs> it's the young aspirationals too how we have so totally betrayed not just the working class youth but even the middle to upper middle class youth it completely completely betrayed them left them hanging out to dry they can't buy a house they get a hex that you that'd choke a horse um they're made to feel that they've failed if they don't know if they don't get some you know, 100.9% for their HSC. They're not allowed to think outside the box. And then they get to in their 20s and they think, how the fuck am I ever even going to buy a shoebox to live in? Let alone think about what can I do culturally. And it's a very rare individual, a young person that can get out there and just be a self-starter. If... if I lent, I gave, I gave, obviously, I gave my son some money once. He needed something. Um, and an accountant rung me. Not, I haven't got one, but anyway, someone that, for, 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 for a couple of bob you had, they said, oh, your son still owes you money. I said, what? Which son? You gave your son some money for this. He still, he hasn't paid it back. I said, what? Paid it back? Of course he's not going to pay it back. I said, what the fuck am I doing here in life if I can't give my son money? You know, if I've got some, I'll give it to him. It's a bit like that. We've got, these, we've got this youth that we continually disenfranchise and make feel completely negative, hopeless, let alone the working class kids trying to get into it. It was a golden period for, a period for me. There was full employment. I could walk up and down Burke Street or Pitt Street in Sydney or Adelaide or Brisbane, pick up a trowel, pick up a load of bricks and get a job and have, have good money. I could go home and buy a fridge or a TV. I could rent a flat. There's no problem. I had full employment. It was fantastic. You could do... You could, it, was a, it was very free. You look at kids now getting four bucks an hour to work in a cafe and they've got to, and, and they've got to pay, like, $285 a week to, to get some, you know, some dive that some prick is ripping them off. Um, the best thing that could happen, in a sense, certainly from Sydney, because the whole... And they, the governments won't let it because it's keeping up the economy, is that the real estate market crashed by about two-thirds through the floor, literally so that young people could afford to just walk the streets, let alone get anywhere or think about, actually, you know, I'd really like to maybe have a... Maybe I, 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 I feel a calling, because in a way sort of the arts, they're a sort of they're a craft without an apprenticeship they're a ministry without responsibility and they're a vocation without a ministry in a way 
And that's for musicians, writers, actors, whatever in the arts. We, this thing, you know, this... this, this, this uh, yes, the corporates run society and it all runs through economies and stuff. And do, do we give a fuck every morning about the Dow Jones? Please, stop it. You know, who cares? You know, shit scared about the stock market? Go fuck itself, you know, really for a few hours. And let people just be human. So it's it's an uh, yeah. I, I, not only do I do I, do I worry, I, I, I'm 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 devastated at the betrayal, our betrayal of our youth. And don't train them, don't train them because don't spend money training them. Because by the time we need them trained, we'll just bring them in anyway. We'll bring them in as cheap labour, so we don't even have to train our own. Don't worry about educating them. Whether it's the arts, it could be IT, engineering, whatever. No, don't don't train your own up. Just bring them in, it's cheaper. That's how it all works. So it, it's... Uh, but I see young people. Oh, I love working with young people. I really love working with, with, with young people. Um, I just worked with a couple of young writers up in Sydney. Um, there's a wonderful writer work with Angela Betsine. She's, got a, she's just written a thing here that her and Matisha are doing, uh, uh, Egg, a kids' show at the Melbourne Theatre Company. And you work with that young girl, a Angela Betsine. She's fantastic, you know. And some of the other people. The courage of some of these young people, the musicians, writers, just performers that are getting out there with this youth. And, and, and they've got, they're, I guess they come from good places. Not, not wealthy homes or anything like that, but, but just they've got love from... From, to, to help them out. And uh, as a beautiful thing, a beautiful line in a play that I'm doing next, uh, it's, just a, it's an Irishman, and he says, all sorts of terrible tragedies happened, and they never did have a child. Uh, and he lied about many, many things, and poor Gracie's wife had several miscarriages, but Frank was always convinced that she was barren, whatever. It's, it's about a dream world. And Frank at the end says, I would have loved to have had a child. I wouldn't have wanted love or respect I wouldn't have been aspirational for it I just would have liked to have looked at him once in a while and you think yes <laughs> and this aspiration that kids have thrust upon them to be successful because the parents are terrified even for the children now and you see your child I've, I mean I've got children they go out into the world and you think oh god oh, that, it, I, I'm not being a dinosaur but I know how hard it is for those for those kids uh, we've betrayed them enormously hugely now in terms of your career um, <laughs> uh, as we said you, you've done film you've done tv uh you've done stage you seem to have come back to the stage uh recently you've done some other tv roles for example oh, yeah, um, but, but it, it really seems recently theater has been kind of where your, your passion is or, or where you've been most active. But you've also said several times in interviews recently that you'd give up acting. You said Death of a Salesman for Belvoir in 2012 would oh, be yeah. your last play in one interview I read. I, hoped, uh, I said I hope it's my last okay. play. You told Alyssa Blake from the Sydney Morning Herald that Moving Parts in 2013 would be your last play. I hope. You, you yeah. keep going. I know, you get addicted. But I do hope. Theatre's dog's work. Uh, I mean, it, it is dog's work. And now, by that, and I love dogs... Um, I'd really do, and I love working dogs, and you've got to be a good dog. That, but it is dog's work. I mean, theatres, like you've got a mob of horses, you've got a mob of sheep or whatever, you send the dogs out. And you, they're good dogs, and they come back, and they're rooted. They're all prick and ribs, and they're rooted when they come back. But they're good dogs. Theatre is dog's work. You've got to do it. You send the dogs out to do it. It's exhausting work. And sometimes I end up in hospital after doing a big plate, 
Willie Loman near killed me. But that was a bit of food poisoning too, but it got me crook anyway. <laughs> but it did near kill me and I got a pancreatic bout, you know. I nearly died of pancreatic cancer once. Um, so I, get, I got that. And you think, oh, God, I hope, I hope this is the last play because it, it's killing. This doing the dudes play is I'm finding it really interesting. I'm much fitter than I, I'm, I'm better off than I was at the minute. So I'm enjoying doing this uh, a lot. It, it doesn't take the strain that these massive roles take. Um, but they take it out of you so much that, but then you don't do one for 18 months. You get on with your life and this, suddenly this addiction comes. You think, oh, God, I wish I had a part to learn, a good part that you could... Because you're getting old, you, you know you, your time's limited. You think, oh... Because I do believe theatre's a community thing and I would love to... What I believe theatre is, is about... It's an act of generosity and I, I would love to, to just communicate that to some of the audience, that, that if two or three people in the audience went out every night thinking oh, I feel a lot more warm and compassionate towards the human condition than when I came in, then that would be good. Now, if I'm getting older and if I've learned anything and, and, and plays that you do, you hope, oh, maybe that'll give them that bit of... Maybe there's a bit of hope in that. That's, that's why I love theatre. And, and I think theatre theater at its essence, sometimes as it's practised is about the most irrelevant, dead, archaic form you could find. But the essence of theatre I find profoundly beautiful. Uh, I really do. And there are moments of it. And I think theatre's moments. It's not the whole two hours or two and a half hours. That Maybe two hours there's bang, one, boom, boom. Two or three moments that you go, oh, my God, oh, that, was, that got you. Puts you through the floor. That's what's great about it, and it happens when it's live. Film's a marvellous art form. Film's fantastic, no problem. But theatre's hard. But you've got to be a dog to do it. Speaking of film, one of the films that you did uh, was Dingo with Miles Davis, directed <laughs> by the recently departed uh, Rolf de Heer. It's not. Rolf's not dead. That was Ooh. Paul. Oh, God. I don't know. Rolf. Rolf hates me, but I hope he's not dead. Um, that was, um, what's his name, the lovely Dutch man? Yes, uh, Paul right. Cox. Paul yeah. Cox, thank Paul you. Paul Cox, yeah, he's a yes. beautiful man. He was a beautiful Good. man. I'm glad I've got Rolf that Rolf here. no, he's, I'm sure Rolf here is very much alive and scaring people to death as, as we speak. <laughs> well, let's um, hear a track from Dingo. Uh, uh, this is the opening track from the film. Uh, and I'll back announce it when we come back in just a second. Miles.
Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts. Uh, we've got about 10 minutes left of our in conversation with Colin Friels here in the performance space. And uh, what better way to uh, start to wrap things up by a couple of questions from the Triple R community who are with us today. Thanks very much. I was wondering if there's a bucket list kind of project, something that you really hope you might get to do in the future. Uh, no, honestly, I've never, I've never thought like that. Uh, the next play I'm doing, I, I'm really... I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm more excited about doing this next play I'm doing than anything I ever have been because I love the play so much. I love the piece so much and I love the writer so much. And the two actors that are doing it, Alison White and Pip Miller, uh, are just both like... I mean, she is just... She's a dream to me as an actress. I just... She is a fantastic. Never seen her be not not be remotely truthful uh, I, 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 you know she's fantastic um, uh, Judy Davis is directing the play uh, and she's one of the best directors I've had the misfortune to work for um, but she'll leave me I mean she knows she'll leave me alone. and Pip Miller is another actor is in it that I couldn't wish for more honestly and to do this and to do Brian Friel's work it, and I hope that's the last play I have to do. <laughs> I hope. Next question. I'm keen to know the, um, the impact that your NIDA training had on you and if all the tools that you use, that you learnt in NIDA, um, are still what you apply to every role um, through yes, your so, career. Yeah, fair question too. And I've thought about that a lot. And people say, oh, I didn't need to go to NIDA and I didn't need... Well, I did. I knew nothing. I'd seen one play before I went to NIDA and I was blessed because it was Peter Brook's Midsummer Night's Dream. It was a seminal production of a Shakespearean play that Peter Brook did, the great Peter Brook. But anyway, I went to NIDA and I, I was blessed. I had a man called Aubrey Mellor, who was a young man at the time, head of acting at NIDA, and I got Aubrey. And... For three years, a couple of other wonderful people like Alex Hay, they were, they were, they, Alex said, no-one can teach you to act. Maybe we can plant a seed. It was different in those days. We were up in little uh, fibro huts, up under the fig trees. But Aubrey was a wonderful... Uh, still is a wonderful teacher uh, uh, and a wonderful director. Aubrey was uh, like, quite enlightened because I knew nothing. And Aubrey, at the end of it, <clears throat> sort of finished, and I, I remember... And I worked really hard at night. I, was, I felt great being there. I was suddenly I was getting an education. It was something that I had no idea in my life, but I suddenly felt at home. And of all the training, Aubrey said, yeah, I did a performance one night just after I left night, and I thought I was so good. I mean, I, I, fig jam, I thought. That was me, you know. You know, fuck, I'm good, just ask me, you know. And I came off stage, and I said, what about that, Aubrey? And he said, oh, God... <laughs> Hope you're not going to turn into one of those actors. I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, it was omnicompetent, it was technical. He said, if that's what turns you on. But he said, if, if your mother died, your children were slaughtered, your dog was burnt to death, your house fell down, he said, maybe you need technique that night. Maybe. It was the best lesson he taught me, but he taught me so assiduously for three years. Uh, cryptically almost. And Aubrey, Aubrey was hard on you. He wasn't, he, there was no softy. He, he wasn't, didn't play any of those stupid psychological games they play now. It was like, you can't do that. That's not the beat of that line. That is the wrong rhythm. You can't do that because of that. It was, it was very strict. It was good training. But he said, but you don't use it. You, that's what you practice. When you perform, it's gone. And, 
So NIDA was great because you had a grounding, you had a basis, and it gave you an approach to things. And if you were lucky, when you left NIDA, you got to work with... I, got, I was lucky I got to work with actors I really respected in the theatre as soon as I left, and I really respected them, and they were fine actors, very fine actors. So I was lucky when I started, and you keep hold of that standard. You try and keep hold of that. So NIDA, I'm eternally grateful for my time at NIDA. Time for one very quick question from the front. Thanks, Colin. Um, I really enjoyed your um, comment about um, uh, when you did the preview or the opening night and uh, expressing your vulnerability um, that you weren't quite prepared, your, your accent wasn't quite ready. Oh, I was nowhere near ready on Thursday night, yeah. It's a seismic shift. It's often the way with a performer. Because you're on doesn't mean if you've just rehearsed, especially with a play like this, you're not ready. But you'll give, it, you'll give them their money's worth for, for, mm. for whatever reason. Um, but that's, it doesn't matter. You, you, sometimes you go backwards in a performance and then you come up, they're, 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 they evolve. And um, that's why I'm never particularly judgmental when I see a performance because you don't know where that, where that person was at at the time, but that's all right. You think, oh, well, I didn't like it. It wasn't very good. They missed, they missed, but they got that bit. But as long as an actor's working on it, there's no, it's no big deal. It's not, not the end of the world. And I guess after, you know, the years, your 30 years in acting, it's, uh, it's great to hear that from somebody who's... Well, yeah, and you still make the same mistakes that you made when you were 20, you know. Can I just ask you one quick question yeah. about your red... The, when you played oh, the Rothko, Rothko play, yeah. yeah. If you could just talk a little bit about that. It's a lovely play, uh, a lovely play, I thought. And it was well presented, that play, too. I, I thought it was. Um, and again, it, it evolved into something that I didn't know it would. And uh, it was, uh, um, I, I enjoyed it very much. We sort of, uh, the premise of the play, uh, commerce versus art. <laughs> And, like, if you like, art wins, you know. Rothko sort of win. It's good. It was good. There's some lovely things in that play. Yeah. As a commercial play, it's one of the better ones, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Colin, Skylight, as we've said, is on at the Melbourne Theatre Company until the 23rd of July in the yep. South Bank Theatre, and people can book, if they'd like to, at mtc.com.au. Um, the play ends on a note of optimism sure. with the suggestion that, in your own words from a recent Herald Sun interview, that the leads will, quote, resolve their lives and become more rounded people. They'll become better human beings. In 100 words or less, what does a being a better human being mean to you? <sighs> being better means... If you see something and you can help, um, and if you see... What did Bob Dylan say? If you don't say it, it might not get said. But you've got to be sort of ready to not just shoot your mouth off, I suppose. Um, we've got to think, I think particularly more these days, we've got to see outside ourselves more. We're, we're constantly forced to, to this self-consciousness all the time, this self-consciousness about ourselves. There's no, no surprise that narcissism is on the rise to a great degree. I think to be better is to see better, uh, to see what really is, and to be part of something. If it's a community, if it's a neighbourhood, if it's whatever, to be less self-driven, less self-satisfied. You know, there is, there is a great deal to be said for seeing outside yourself. I think that's helps mm. Mm. to do your job well too and to be of use to try and be of use 
You've been listening to Colin Friel's In Conversation, live from the Triple R Performance Space. Thanks to our team of volunteers and support staff, Brett, Archie, Lauren, Brian, Chris, Zorin, Elizabeth. Thank you also to our technology partners, Avid and KV2, monitoring for the sound in the performance space. Stay tuned for Get Down, coming up after a couple of sponsorship announcements, but please thank Colin Friel's. <laughs> For complete access to the Triple R archives, which include over 100 interviews, live to air performances, documentaries, and other Triple R specials, become a subscriber via the link on our website. Thanks for listening to Triple R.